great deal of people have been asking me as of late about Torah. They hear me talking about these laws and all the Hebrew names associated with them, and they want to know, what is Torah and how does it apply to them? Well, Torah directs us to the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Every king in a kingdom has a law, and when it comes to Yah's laws, it's Torah. Torah is the law of heaven. Makes sense that it would be. The writers of scripture often refer to it as instructions in righteousness. Think about that. Righteous living. That's something which sinners are not concerned with. But Torah isn't strictly written as one might imagine legal paperwork drawn up today. The word of Yahuwah filled his first five books with incredible stories of righteous men and unrighteous men, and then interwove instructions on how to become righteous throughout. Also, examples of what rebellion against his law looks like, practically speaking. So, think Adam, Cain, Enoch, Noah, Nimrod, Abraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov, the Twelve Patriarchs, Moshe, Pharaoh, Korah, Yahushua, Og, and Balaam. Some of those people obeyed Torah. Then again, others rebelled against it and said it wasn't necessary for their daily living. Learning the law and then being obedient to our Father's house rules is how we become set apart from the unbelieving world. Saying someone is set apart is the same thing as saying they're holy. To say Yahuwah, the Most High Elohim of Yasharel, is holy, holy, holy is the same thing as set apart, set apart, set apart. Some translations straight out interpret it that way, and that is because Torah is the mirror image of our Heavenly Father. It's His very character. Our Father in Heaven is unchanging from beginning to end, which tells us that His set-apart ways are also unchanging. And in fact, Torah is eternal. It says so. Heaven and earth are even given as witnesses to that fact. So, if you can look out your window and see heaven or earth this very moment, then the Torah abides. Therefore, by its very rules, nobody is allowed to come along later and say it's done away with. Many have tried, but it didn't end so well for them. Our instructions in righteous living and the method by which we walk on the narrow path does not reinvent itself with each passing generation. That's ridiculous and sounds like something which the intel community dishes out. To hate Torah is to despise Yahuwah as well as his son. To want nothing to do with Torah is to want nothing to do with our father or his son or the Ruach HaKodesh, the set-apart spirit, or the Holy Spirit. The son was fully obedient to his father, and in fact could say or do nothing that he did not first hear or learn from him in heaven. I thought we were to walk as Yahushua walks, not just watch him walk and then walk off in the opposite direction. How can we say we want to spend an eternity with either of them, the Father and the Son, as well as the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, if we want nothing to do with their very character? Just so everyone knows, what the Christians and Jews have in common is that both parties have done away with Torah in order that they might keep to their own traditions, the doctrines of men. Yahushua rejected the doctrines of men. That's why he criticized the Pharisees so, because of their oral tradition. What he wasn't doing is criticizing them for committing themselves to the marriage vows which Yahuwah instructed Moshe to tell the children of Yasharel. 
Remember that adulterous scene at Mount Sinai where the children of Israel decided to worship Yahuwah by dancing around a golden calf? It didn't work out so well for them either. Why do we feel as though those rules have changed for us now? Whenever I ask Christians, again, those who claim Jesus came to undo his father's work and that the law has been done away with, when I ask if it's okay that I become, say, a homosexual, they never want to answer that question because they know what comes next. They can't answer the question because they know it is Torah which informs everyone that men having sex with another man is an abomination. Most Christians still follow Torah, which is to be commended, but only the bits and pieces which they find culturally relevant and according to the decade they currently inhabit. There are only 613 laws in Torah. That's it. There are hundreds of thousands of laws in the United States alone, and nobody seems to bat an eye. Tell them Yah has 613, and suddenly everyone's having a convulsion. Again, there's only 613 laws. If that seems overbearing at first thought, or too anthropological, then I suggest this website, which I've laid out for you here, the 613.info. It's an interactive website that lays out every law within Torah and then categorizes them according to the 10 and the 2. Remember how Yahushua said the two greatest commands were to love Elohim and to love others, our neighbors? He was referring to the Ten Commandments. The Ten can be divided into two, five and five. Well, wouldn't you know it, the 613 all fall under one of those two categories. Amazing. I encourage you to look through them, but also to notice something. All of the 613 don't necessarily apply to me or to you. Now, speaking for myself, consider that I am married and I am a man. I'm not a woman. I'm not a Levite priest. I'm not a farmer. I'm not living in the land. I'm not a judge. Currently, I don't own any animals. I'm not divorced, nor a widow or widower. My elder brother still lives, and his only wife has sons for inheritors. Thank you. I'm not a leper, nor do I know any lepers. There are lots of laws which do not apply to me. Only some laws apply to me. But let's just assume for the moment that Yahusha did come to undo the work of his father, the Demirge, which is now sounding a lot like Gnosticism. Let's just go with that. Done away with. Am I free to undress my father's wife now? Or how about my wife's sister? Can I bed with her? Or how about my son's wife? even if my son is dead, is sleeping with her a sin? Can I have sexual relations with a woman and her daughter? Can I have sexual relations with my mom's sister? Can I kick a pregnant woman? Is a man or a woman allowed to have sexual relations with an animal? Can I marry someone outside of the covenant? Are we free to kidnap now? That sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> Am I free to oppress a stranger? Can I cheat a foreigner uh, monetarily? Do the scales for commerce still need to be weighted properly? Can I put my wife away now without a bill of divorce? Can I sell my son or daughter into slavery? Can I have sexual relations with a woman if she's engaged to someone else? Rape, is that back on the table? Can I steal money and then lie about it? Can I gossip about others? Can I deny possession of something entrusted to me? 
Can I withhold food, clothing, and sexual relations from my wife? Can we finally dishonor the elderly? Can I stand around idly while someone else's life is in danger? Can I stop doing what I've already vowed to do? Do I still have to repent of my transgressions? That's clearly Torah, by the way. Can I have children outside of wedlock? Do I still have to be loving towards foreigners? Can I worship other Elohim? Can I now imitate other idolaters in clothing or tradition? Can I swear in the name of an idol? Can I make idols for others? Can I mutter incantations? Can I engage in astrology? Can I inquire of spirits? Am I free to follow the whims of my heart and worship Yahuwah however I feel he should be worshipped via traditions and doctrines of men, or perhaps not worship him at all? Can I keep stolen items for myself? Can I stop feeding the poor? Can I withhold from charity? Can I bear a grudge? Must the dead still be buried? Seriously, let them lie where they fall. Can I withhold testimony in court if I have evidence which might pardon someone or set them free? Can I testify falsely? Can we now appoint judges who aren't familiar with the law? Can we move our neighbor's boundary marker? There's one law where if two men are fighting, one of the men's wives is forbidden to reach out and harm the other man's balls. Is that up for grabs now? Oh, but that's right. Bacon is kosher now. Certainly, if someone were to offer up pork on an altar, it couldn't possibly be an abomination, even if the Antichrist did it. And Sabbath is no longer the mark of Yah. I can just rest whenever I want because Jesus is my rest. Kind of like how I don't have to eat bread or drink water anymore because he's both of those things. Did I get that right? Our Father in Heaven created seven holy days. Created. They originate from his mind. Our Creator's mind. The same Elohim who created us and the cosmology surrounding us. But let's just snub those and go with the holidays invented by pagan gods and the Hallmark Company. A world without Torah sounds awful, kind of like the one we currently inhabit. Imagine what this flat, motionless realm would look like if Yahushua reigned as king and everyone was obedient to his father's commands. That's the realm that I want to live in, in a world where the law is written on our hearts. Meanwhile, our Masonic and Jesuit controllers, ultimately Rome itself, have inverted everything. They've whispered into everyone's ear that being obedient to our Father is sin. And they've been cyclically repeating it for so long that most people simply believe it to be factual. Isn't that sad? They're trapped in a vacuum of postmodernist morality, not knowing what is truly right or wrong except what is culturally acceptable or according to their own heart, because the law is done away with. There is no longer a standard of holiness. I know I was there. It's terrible. Christianity is a cesspool of paganism and idolatry worship, and I'm so glad I climbed out of it. And you can too, but you have to be that someone who is desperately desiring the truth. You have to hunger for it and thirst for it. If you're unwilling to break loose from those shackles of sin, which the church calls freedom, then you'll never see it. Nobody is capable of showing you the truth that is written in scripture. Nobody else, at least. Most people frame Torah with blood and ritualistic sacrifice and claim that Torah cannot be obeyed and that anyone who tries to is lost in their sin because the temple was destroyed. Well, here's something which your local controller will never tell. There is not one animal sacrifice in Torah for conscious sin. It's just not there. Two-thirds of the sacrifices are thanksgiving offerings. 
It's for the people who love you who is so much that they want to journey to the temple and have dinner with the Most High. All they have to do is bring the groceries. Torah has always been about repentance. If we sin, we ask the Most High for forgiveness. The Christian age of grace is a myth. There has always been grace. Not grace to sin, no. Grace for repentance. Yes, it is true that sin leads to death. It is also true that Yahushua HaMashiach is our Savior. He has saved us from Sheol and from eternal death and has allowed us to come back into covenant with Him after our forefathers were given a Bella divorce. Why was Israel given a Bella divorce? Not because they sinned. Not because the law was unbearable. No, they were given a bill of divorce because they refused to repent. They didn't think the law was applicable for them. To say salvation implies he has freed us from his law and granted permission to sin is insanity. Such an attitude has never turned out well for anyone in biblical his story. And yet it's practically a Christian mantra. And at any rate, that's how our controllers frame it. Satan is only here to rob, murder, and destroy. He wants you unclean and living in sin. His best weapon is to give us the law and then convince us it is the right or godly thing to do to break it. Go home, pick up your Bibles, give it a read, and then do what it says. Anyone who tells you differently, to disobey it, that is, is working for the accuser. This is something two or three days ago that Dave, is Dave still in the room? Has he fallen asleep on me yet? He usually goes to night-night a little bit early. I'm here. Okay. Well, Dave dropped this into our Millennial Kingdom room on our Discord um, community, and I thought this was really cool. And a lot of people are asking me about the timeline. On an abstract level, he did a really good job on this, and so I just wanted to take us through this. And, um, you know, I have, you know, different varying views, but he put this together really well. And this is what Dave says about our history. He says, this is my basic understanding. First stage is when the angels and other creations of the most high, we see in scripture, the whole uh, tohu bohu issue, which is essentially a judgment event. So I'd call the creation account in scripture, the first reset into the second age. We also see Satan was the ruler of this realm for a time. That certainly didn't happen during the biblical timeline, so I'm suggesting, as others have, that there was an age in between Genesis 1 and 2. I, I fully agree with this. I would um, actually add to this. Now, what he's saying here is that the Genesis account of creation has not happened yet. There was a, a, a age beforehand. I am uh, actually of the current opinion. Now, I can't, I can't prove this using scripture. Um, I have ancient texts and sources on this, but it's not what we would call necessarily inspired by the, uh, the Ruach HaKadosh. However, I am of the thought that we are currently the seventh age, not the second age. The creation account in Genesis 1 is, I believe that there were perhaps six ages of creation beforehand, and that we are the seventh, and so everything that we will see in his points here from the second age to the sixth age are within the seventh. And then when we finally get to New Jerusalem coming down and we enter eternity, that is in entering the eighth age, right? And it actually works out perfectly. We're the seventh age, we go into the eighth age. All right, second age. Adam and Adam and Hava were created. 
and man multiplies. The only thing I would add here is that, and again, this isn't like a, you know, however you feel about this, it, it's not really changing um, scripture that much. It's not, this isn't a salvation issue. Uh, I currently believe that he created man and woman um, on the, the, the sixth day on the earth. Uh, I don't know how many he created, 100, 12, 10,000, a million. I don't know. He created them. And then uh, Adam and Hava were the priest of humanity that were created in the third heaven and paradise, and they were to be priest over humanity. And it's kind of hard to be a priest over humanity if there is no, uh, you know, no humanity to be priest over. But that being said, there is the, inclu- uh, the incursion of the Watchers who create the Nephilim and spur the Golden Age. Now, the incursion of the Watchers happens, uh, according, depending on your timeline, anywhere from like 700 to 1300 years after creation. These uh, spawn the, the titans, giants, half-human hybrids, Greek gods, Native American gods, human sacrifice, the whole gamut. The genetics are corrupted. The Most High floods the earth to cleanse, um, and we get into our second reset. So now we're up to the end of the second age. Flood happens. We go into the third age. No and his family repopulate the earth. So here we've had... Uh, a second reset. The the creation event was the beginning after a the last reset. There are remnants of antediluvian architecture, but the knowledge for the most part is lost. Through the story of Nimrod, we see he becomes a mighty man, likely through ritual sex magic of some kind. For some reason, wow, I missed that when you wrote that the first time. That's pretty intense, Dave. But nonetheless, he brings back ancient knowledge and begins the Tower of Babel. The Most High sees mankind united against him and confuses the languages. Semi-reset, which is true. It was a semi-reset. Also, something that that I have seen in older texts that uh, that seems to have happened was what we call a wind flood. The ancients called it a wind flood, and it was right around the time of Abraham and the Tower of Babel when um, there are records of a, a a Mesopotamian event for sure, but maybe worldwide, where this massive wind came through and knocked down all the idols. And there's old records on it. Really interesting. Probably not the level of wiping out society, but knowledge is lost. And to me, that is a big part of what constitutes a reset. And I, I sometimes wonder if this wind uh, flood actually happened at the time when the tower came down. Fourth age. This age is relatively long, but the Most High decides to intervene, creating a people devoted to his ways. A covenant is made with Ab- Abraham. Um, Moshe timeline plays out. Messiah comes. He is killed. He comes back in 66 AD to dish out punishment. Actually, we'll be finding tonight um, 67 AD uh, day, but we'll let that slide. Just as he said he would. Within several hundred years, he ushers in the Millennial Kingdom, which starts the next age. So if you guys um, saw my timeline deception video or read the paper, the best I can come up with based on multiple scriptural texts is that it says 500 years after Messiah, uh, the kingdom is ushered in. So that's what he meant by several hundred years. Fifth age, the 1,000 years that Satan is in prison and the MK starts. So I'm saying this starts 500 years, but um, I actually think it started sometime in the 700s, uh, the later end of the 700s. You might be like, well, how is that so? Well, keep in mind, Rome doesn't have to play fair. Whenever they started counting, you know, after, you know, the year of uh, Jesus or Jesus or Christos or whatever, it could have been, you know, 200 years after his uh, resurrection, and they said it was the year 400, right? They didn't have to play fair, all right? 
So this is where the mud flood architecture we see around the world was built during the millennial kingdom. Um, but of course, like the paper we read, the newspaper article with like the, the Aztec pyramids and such, uh, those would have been beforehand, I believe. And that was ancient Babylon that was wiped out. With, with the knowledge of the priests and kings of the Messiah, mankind is able to create, and it's, it is astounding. The 1,000 years comes to an end at the same time. The Watchers and Satan are free from their prison in the early 1800s, or, or so we're told. Reset. And, you know, we obviously don't know when Satan was released or when the Watchers were released. Um, it's really impossible to tell. Were they released with the mud flood? Did the mud flood happen as a result of them being released? Like, we, we just don't know at this point. Um, I, I, at least I haven't come to any um, sure conclusions on that. Sixth age, there is a gigantic mud flood. In my opinion, it manufactured it is manufactured, not of the most high. So that's interesting. Um, so I think Dave is, is coming to the conclusion here that maybe Satan and the Watchers did it. The powers of the world are shaken. Heck, even the terrain is changed. There are essentially 201 super beings working tirelessly to save the entire world. I'm not sure what his math is on that. I know the 200 Watchers and then Hasatan. Though, um, though I think uh, from... Uh, someone would have to show me how Az um, Azazel was released, because it seems that uh, Yahuwah prophesied that the others would be released, but he would never be released. So now we're down at least one. Making it 200 again. Newsflash, they've succeeded. This is the age we're in now. It's barely been 200 years. We're at the severe end of the timeline. Our time is short, just like Satan's. Gog and Magog is coming. The ultimate battle against the Most High, the second resurrection and white throne judgment, are coming where those, um, where those on the earth are to answer for the things they've done in their lifetime. Reset. And then he has the seventh age. The Most High makes a new heaven and new earth. We don't know the rest. Good job, Dave. I really enjoyed that. I put that out there just as a little abstract. I would like to um, uh, kind of work with this a little bit more and, and build on it and maybe get something together uh, using scriptures. And you know, there was no scripture used in there, but hope you guys all understand. I mean, it. He's pulling that from scripture, and I think a lot of you guys were able to visualize where he was pulling that from. Now, for tonight's presentation, I will be dumping a lot of scripture in here. I put the PDF file in, so hopefully you guys have had time to open it up. Let's get into it. The glorious appearing of Yahushua HaMashiach, what really happened in 70 AD. The calling it the glorious appearing of Yahushua HaMashiach was a last-minute decision, just so you guys know. Not a preterist. Hold on, let me get a, um, a drink of coffee. Let me, let me uh, start again. Not a preterist. To even insinuate Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD is to agree to the lying pen of the scribe. That's the trouble I'm having. It's simply not enough to say the people of that generation knew it as a very different year, when in fact the entire timeline has been mashed, whipped, scrambled, and pureed every which way imaginable, into a recipe which is no longer organic nor linear. Don't get me wrong, Yerushalayim was destroyed. The events surrounding its destruction, however, are downplayed for a very specific purpose. To hide his story and force-feed everyone with the counterfeit, something which every Jesuit could agree upon. Well, I'm here to tell you that Yahushua HaMashiach fulfilled exactly what he said he would and in precisely the manner and time frame when he promised to go about doing it. 
the millennial kingdom of Messiah happened. Just don't expect me to conclude that 70 AD is the year when his kingdom was ushered in, though. It's not, so far as I can tell. Lots of people, when combing through the mud of the Great Reset, look to the destruction of Yerushalayim for clues and answers. They often begin their investigation there, which is perfectly fine. I did the same. Unfortunately, it is, also, it is often also the stopping point. Many assume the Millennial Kingdom was ushered in with the lightning bolt, but I further discovered and already shown that not to be the case. The timeline continues for another 500 years, give or take a century. I'm referring to my paper, The 7,000-Year Timeline Deception. If you've already read it for yourself, then you'll know I skipped right over the year 70 AD, but not because I was snubbing it. Indeed, the generation which sponsored the destruction of Yerushalayim deserves a treatment of their own, because something of importance did happen. It was nearly two years ago now that I wrote a paper insisting that Yahushua fulfilled his promises in that generation. Ever since then, people have been labeling me a preterist. Can you believe that? A filthy, stinking preterist. The nerve. I'll have you know, those are seminary bullet points. They are attempting to turn the table and make me out to be the indoctrinated one, but the tactic isn't working. In declaring that end-time prophecies have already been fulfilled, a preterist is ultimately telling you that there is no curtain needing pulled, nor conspiracy at play, only a series of misunderstandings. But that is not what I am doing here. I never trust a conveniently hung drape. And I'm telling you now that his story has been scrubbed. A preterist is also advocating, while chewing on his pork rinds and bacon, that the millennial kingdom of Messiah was either metaphorical or spiritual in nature, and often maintains that we are currently living in it. Ridiculous. You are free to continue calling me one, but then know this. You're creating a straw man argument. Straw man is defined as an intentionally misrepresented proposition that is set up because it is easier to defeat than an opponent's real argument. I copied and pasted that definition from the internet for one person, for the one person who still doesn't know what a straw man is. There is one in every crowd, and that's okay. This is an educational exercise. You never really know what you're going to learn. And to be fair, I suppose lots of people label me a preterist because there is no other category to place me in. Just because I happen to agree with a few bullet points of preterist thinking doesn't make me one. And no, I'm not in denial. By that logic, you might as well call me a Roman Catholic or an Ethiopian Jew or a Gnostic. What I'm saying is, you're going to have to put up your game if you want to debunk what I'm advocating. Peruse, uh, Excuse me, Perusia. The other thing is that people keep dropping fan letters in my mailbox stating that I have it all wrong because Jesus only comes once and I need to repent of disagreeing with their church pastor. They never leave any scripture as proof, though. They simply tell me he comes once, and so if he already appeared, then he cannot possibly come again and we're all screwed or something to that effect. Did I get that right? As if we live in a spiritual vacuum of space and time, far beyond the expiration date of salvation, which the Most High never previously thought through or considered. I am pressed to conclude such statements are the regurgitated efforts of our controllers, who have whispered such rhetoric into our ears for so long that we no longer see scripture in any other light. 
when in fact nearly everything is inverted and the complete opposite makes far more logical sense. If you are asking yourself, did I miss the second coming? Then rest assured, this is the wrong question to ask. The term second coming is not found anywhere among the books we often call the New Testament. It is an invented phrase. There is no second coming. Rather, there are promises of his coming. That sleight of hand is an attempt by our controllers to keep us grounded in their fabricated history rather than his story. The Greek word often translated second coming is parousia. And though it does describe a presence or coming, the term is used to denote the arrival of a conquering general, king, or emperor into a city for an extended stay, oftentimes for several months or years, before returning to his capital city. I need to stress extended stay because that's precisely what happened. Yahusha arrived in Jerusalem to conquer and destroy a wicked city, Jerusalem, Perusia. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Not one stone remained, but you knew that already. Well, I'm here to tell you that Yahusha personally saw to it. And, you've, and if you think the Most High or his son wouldn't commit to such a deed, at least not in Yerushalayim, then hold that thought. We'll get back to it eventually. Because the idea of the Most High appearing in the clouds isn't exclusive to the second coming. Rather, it's right on par with Hebrew thinking. See for yourself, this comes from Yeshayahu or Isaiah, chapter 19, verses 1 through 2. The burden of Mitzrayim, behold, Yahuwah rides upon a swift cloud and shall come into Mitzrayim, and the idols of Mitzrayim shall be moved at his presence, and the heart of Mitzrayim shall melt in the midst of it. And I will set the Mitzrayim against Mitzrayim, and they shall fight everyone against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. The descriptions of what Yahuwah intends to do to Mitzrayim goes on and on from there. If I were to have you read on, which I won't, then you would see that the destruction of Mitzrayim sounds very similar to the destruction of Yerushalayim. What I wanted you to see is that Yahuwah is described as riding upon a swift cloud. That should nab our attention. It even says, Behold. Typically, I would only tell someone, Behold, if I wanted them to see or observe something. And so, I can only imagine, there was a glorious appearing to behold. Not that everyone would have framed his coming in such a way. The darkness hates the light, but again, you knew that already. Solomon's Temple Turns out, you didn't have to wait too long. You were trying to tell me that Yahuwah would never destroy Yerushalayim, that I am painting him as a murderer of his own people. And then I asked you to hold that thought. We're back on it now. I'm trying my best to keep thoughts organized. What I wanted to tell you is that the destruction of the first temple is recorded in 2nd Baruch, and Yahuwah very much had a part to play in it. Before the Babylonians could even get their paws on the goods, angels were instructed to enter the Holy of Holies to remove the Ark of the Covenant, among other priceless items. And then we read the following. And after these things, I heard the angels saying to those angels who held the lamps, Destroy, therefore, and overthrow its wall to its foundations, lest the enemy should boast and say, We have overthrown the wall of Zion, and we have burnt the place of El Elohim. And ye have seized the place where I had been standing before. Baruch Sheni, or Second Baruch, 7, verses 1 through 2. An order from top brass is given to destroy and overthrow the walls and foundations of Yerushalayim. 
I don't know how, to, how you read that, but I read it as an invitation for the enemy to enter. There's more than one reason as to why I brought up this account. When we get around to reading Josephus, you'll be able to connect the pieces. Presently in Baruch, though, we can see that the armies of heaven hadn't arrived quite yet. Scouts had. Their errand was to prepare the way for judgment. You know, blow up bridges and supply lines and stuff. The infantry would finish the job. Yahuwah's role in Yerushalayim's destruction the first time around is far more involved than overthrowing the foundations and then hiding the artwork. Even before he got around to that, he, pl- <clears throat> he plagued the people, perhaps not so dissimilarly from the plaguing of Mitzrayim. Only these were disbanded upon his own people. Follow along. Therefore, Yahuwah has made good his word, which he pronounced against us, and against our judges that judge Yasharel, and against our kings, and against our princes, and against the men of Yasharel and Yehuda, to bring upon us great plagues, such as never happened under the whole heaven, as it came to pass in Yerushalayim, according to the things that were written in the Torah of Moshe, that a man should eat the flesh of his own son, and the flesh of his own daughter. Moreover, he has delivered them to be in subjection to all the kingdoms that are round about us, to be as a reproach and desolation among all the people round about, where Yahuwah has scattered them. Thus, we were cast down and not exalted, because we have sinned against Yahuwah Elohainu, and have not been obedient unto his voice. Baruch Rishon, or First Baruch, chapter 2, verses 1-5. through five. The descriptions go on and on from there, and they're not pleasant. Rather difficult topping the description of men eating the flesh of off their own sons or daughters, though. That's disgusting beyond description. Before anyone concludes that cannibalism is incidental and completely separate from Yahuwah's judgment, I will again remind you that it's categorized as a plague brought upon them. You will tell me that they are the children of Elohim and that he would never do something like that. Well, they're not El's children if they're not obedient to our Father's commands. Being born from Abraham's clan is irrelevant, as even Islam claims ancestry. Yahuwah gave ample time for repentance, but ultimately judged them for rebelling against Torah. Baruch even states as much when writing, Thus we were cast down and not exalted, because we have sinned against Yahuwah Elohainu, and have not been obedient unto his voice. And much like the Romans on a later date, Yahuwah brought in the Babylonians to humble them. All right, let's get to it. The taste of death. This is just a suggestion on my part, but if it's the timeline of Messiah's appearing that we're after, then it seems like listening to what he has to say on the matter would be a good idea. Believe it or not, Yahusha has much more to offer than no man knows the day or the hour. Everybody knows that line, probably because it complements the official narrative, which is set up in such a way as to insinuate malpractice. Very few other lines of his, however, are quoted. You're about to find out why. So this comes from Matthew, or Matthew, chapter 10, verse 23. And Yahushua says, But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For amen, I say unto you, Ye shall not have gone over the cities of Yasharel till the son of Adam is come. 
Notice how Yahusha isn't telling his disciples that a future generation would not flee to every city within Yasharel before he returned for them. If he were, that would be low-hanging fruit, as prophecies go. I mean, even I could make claims like that. Contrarily, he's speaking to his disciples. He promised that he was coming for them. Kind of hard to argue around that one. The Amen I say to you quip is added for extra emphasis. That's how we know we're supposed to take Yahushua's words seriously. His disciples were expected to believe that he would return for them. And now you know why they were anxiously awaiting. Because he never once insinuated that he would only return for a generation thousands of years later. Here's another from the Hebrew Gospel of Yochanan, chapter 4, verses 2-3. through In the house of my father are many dwelling places. Truly I say, to go to... Truly I say to go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare the place, I will come again and bring you unto me, so that in the place where I am, there you may be also. Even more context to his imminent return is given when Yahushua claims he is leaving to prepare a place for his disciples. That's wedding talk. Preparing a house is what a groom did for his bride. The very notion that he would go and prepare a place for them means that he intended to gather them under his wing. You will tell me the context is Sheol. But then take another look. He said he would come again. He would come again to Sheol. The context is his present whereabouts, the flat, motionless plain, the realm we currently inhabit below the firmament. He didn't say he was coming for other people, though. No, he was coming for them. His glorious appearing is being incited. The destination, of course, is New Jerusalem. That's the place being referred to, which Yahushua was preparing. Look closer. Yahushua never said he was bringing New Jerusalem with him. No, he was gathering the twelve to take them to the place where he was, to New Jerusalem. This gives us some added clarity to the timeline. Though his kingdom resided in heaven, he would not be setting up his kingdom upon the earth quite yet. He came again, but only to gather the righteous and return to heaven. Our next verse comes from uh, Matthew, Matthew, Yahu, chapter 16, verses 27 through 28. For the son of Adam shall come in the glory of his father with his angels, and then he, then he shall reward every man according to his works. Amen, I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste death till they see the son of Adam coming in his kingdom. Again, with the Amen, I say unto you, must be important. The context, as you can likely already guess, is Yahushua speaking to his disciples. He has just rebuked Hasatan and told him to step away from Kepha. Within another couple of lines, Yahushua then assures him, There be some standing here which shall not taste death. I take that to mean exactly what it says. Some of his disciples would die, but certainly not all of them. What do you take it to mean? Rather difficult reading that in any other light. He doesn't say a future generation would be standing around and that some of them wouldn't taste death. That would have been more low-hanging fruit, as anyone can prophesize that. He furthermore doesn't say that a future generation would see the son of Adam coming in the glory of his father with the angels. No, he was assuring his disciples that they were the generation which would see it go down. Our next one comes from Marcus, or Mark, chapter 8, verses 38 through, uh, through 9-1. Whosoever, therefore, shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
of him also shall the son of Adam be ashamed, when he cometh in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that there be some of them that stand here, which shall not taste of death, till they have seen the kingdom of Elohim come with power. There it is. Certain people were standing among Yahusha, who wouldn't taste death until they saw the kingdom of Elohim arrive with power. Notice what he isn't saying. He's not saying he will be ashamed of an unnamed future generation who is ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. What would be the point of that? The people standing around would would have asked, so you're not speaking about us then? It's a future generation which needs to repent? Kind of difficult jumping through the excuse me. Kind of difficult jumping through the fiery hoops which cancel these passages out. But countless people exert a lifetime of energy making a go at it. I don't get it. Scripture makes way more sense when we stop making everything we don't like into a metaphor or suggestive and let the son of El speak for himself. If anyone needs caught up, by the way, I'm on page 12. Our next passage comes from Marcus, Mark chapter 14, verses 61 through 62. But he held his peace, his shalom, and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou Hamashiach, the son of the blessed? And Yahushua said, I am. And ye shall see the son of Adam sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Uh, I put a note here. We can also see Matthew 26, 63 through 65, and Luke 22, 67 through 71. It's the same uh, um, quote to the temple controllers, uh, but from a different gospel. So we don't need to look through all of them. Roughly translated, Yahushua told the temple controllers that they would look up to the clouds, see the king of kings among the armies of heaven, and be like, Ah, hell nah, which is essentially what happened. History simply refuses to acknowledge that part of the narrative, but it's to be expected. After all, the kings of the earth do conspire against Yahuwah. If they could scrub an event such as his glorious appearing, you know they would. All right, we are on page 13, if anyone is caught up. Matthew 24. But what of Matthew 24, you tell me? Well, what of it? Everyone brings up Matthew 24 like it's supposed to prove that we're still sitting around 2,000 years later waiting for the tribulation to unfold. You thought I was trying to avoid it, didn't you? Do I look like the sort of person who avoids controversial matters? I was simply laying up the groundwork, that's all. Giving peripheral vision. Despite clarity, people love to take one passage in Scripture to have it disprove all the others. And Matthew 24 is their boy. The argument always comes down to this generation. People read this and then supersede the word that to prove their point. It doesn't prove anything except cognitive dissonance or bias. More than likely, it manifests a penchant for history as our theological informant. Our controllers have scrubbed the past, and so Yahusha must have been speaking of a different generation, you see. But then, when that fails to stick the landing, we come up with translations such as the following. Uh, now, I'll read from the King James first, Matthew 24, 3, 4. This is one of the most popular verses in this discussion. Verily I say unto you, 
this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. And then my uh, favorite Bible as of late. Amen, I say unto you, this nation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Matthew 24, 34. The KJV is provided on the left, but then you'll notice the Sefer exchanges generation for nation. I'm detecting a bias. Where did they dig up that word? Every Bible translation that I can find employs generation. The NIV, the NLT, the ESV, the BSB, the BLB, the KVJ, and the NKJV, the NASB, the CSB, the HCSB, the ASV, the ABPE, the CEV, the DRB, the ERV, the GNT, the GWT, the ISV, the LSV, the NET, the NHEB, the WNT, the WEB, and the YLT, not to overlook the NKJV, which I actually already mentioned, all lay claim to generation rather than nation. That was a true tongue twister. And that is because the Greek is, I can't pronounce that word, but it, and it literally says gina or jenna. That's where we get the word generation from. Hard to come up with nation out of jenna but some people would rather perform acrobatics through fiery hoops, complete with the soundtrack of barking seals banging their noses upon the xylophone, rather than dealing with the reality being told to us. All things would be fulfilled within this generation. Supposing you're still here to die on that hill rather than this hill, let's read Matthew 24 again. Unfortunately, I cannot use my favorite Bible this time around, as the translators have taken intellectually dishonest steps to push... Uh, their readers even further into the cognitive dissonance. So, reading from the KJV then. Matthew 24. We'll go ahead and read through this whole chapter. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceives you. That's Matthew 24, verses 1-4. through 4. Pause. The general argument is that the disciples asked three different questions, or rather one question signifying three separate events sprawled across a multi-generational timetable. The first involves the destruction of the temple, which is then followed by the side of his coming and finally the end of the world. The same argument insists the temple would be destroyed in this generation, whereas the remainder would fall in line, but only after taking a massive, massive leap across the chasm of two millennia. But as I've but as you've already read, that dismisses every other quote given by Yahushua when speaking to his disciples. And besides, this generation does not arrive until the very end of his discourse. Talk about leaps in logic. Such deductive reasoning insists his conclusion applies to nothing earlier stated except for the temple and a few other lines from the cherry picker. Continuing. Starting in verse 5. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nations shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines, and pestilences, and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you. 
and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy pace. Whoso readeth, let him understand. Then. <clears throat> then let him which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it or not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Ah, there's another you, I didn't highlight it. Bummer. Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the secret chambers, believe it not. For as lightning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. While it's affording another read through Matthew 24, I made special note of something. I even pulled out the red highlighter just so that you might see what I see. It says you. It also says ye, but that's the same thing as saying you. I counted 12 times. I need to add 13 now. When either ye or you were employed throughout the provided discourse. That's who Yahushua is addressing. Ye and you. As in his audience, which happens to be his disciples. No, it's not directly written to you, you. Just as assuredly as it wasn't written to your grandparents or your great or your third great-grandparents, or your 35th great-grandparents. You can claim I'm robbing you of hope, but then what of your 35th great-grandfather? He's dead. Where is his hope? That's because it wasn't directly spoken to them or to you. It was spoken to and then written down for his immediate audience listening in. Sure, there are instances where other people are addressed rather than you, such as when describing the person on the rooftop. But that is because his disciples may have not stood upon a rooftop, whereas others from their generation were expected to. Also because he who shall endure until the end, the same shall be saved, gave everyone listening in something to fight for. 
they're all from the generation of the fig tree. There is no other fig tree generation. People will argue that he had drifted from their generation to another by this point, but he's clearly still addressing his disciples. He says to them, so likewise, telling us that everything previously described is applicable to them and not some distant people group. And just to be certain, because no matter what Yahusha says, he, the majority of the crowd almost always seems to fall in disagreement. He adds, when ye see all these things, wait, the disciples are expected to see all these things, including the son of Adam coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's what he says. After explaining to them all the things they'd see in their lifetime, his line then continues, know that it is near even at the doors. Seems serious. Arriving at the knocker is pretty close, if you ask me. Should a mugger stand on the other side of my front door? I think it would be safe to say that's too close for comfort. Why would his glorious appearing hang around on the porch for 2,000 years without knocking? He wouldn't phrase it like that. Arriving at the doors means exactly what he intends it to mean, as proximity goes, like when we read that he stands at the door and knocks in Revelation 3.20. It is in that context that we then read, This generation shall not pass, so all these things be fulfilled. Wrangling that last line away from Yahushua's entire discourse just goes to show the desperation from those who prefer the narrative of our present-day temple controllers rather than the vitality of wonder and excitement which can be found in his story. Forty years is a long time. Much can happen. Take the abomination which causes desolation, for example. If there was a person responsible for that abomination, he may not have even been born yet. Four decades is still a long time to wait. No man knew the day nor the hour. Plenty of time to write the books which the Roman Catholic Church would then label the New Testament. All right, we're on page 19 if anyone needs to catch up. This generation. Apparently, Yahushua was really speaking about a generation 2,000 years removed, and the Twelve didn't get the memo. The concluding pages of our Bible were written in haste. The extreme sense of urgency can be felt by Yaakov, Kepha, and Yochanan. As we have already seen, Yahushua said all these things would be fulfilled in this generation, Matthew 24-34. He said there were people who wouldn't taste death before all these things came to pass, Matthew 10-23, 16-27, uh, verse 28. Um, 2434. He told the high priest that he would see him, that they would see him in his glory. Matthew 26, uh, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Another way of looking at this is that Yahushua was the last prophet sent by Yahuwah. He constantly spoke of the Yahudim's disobedience and lack of faithfulness to the Most High's Torah, and therefore warned them of Yerushalayim's destruction. No other prophet did that. So why don't we believe the context and obvious connotations of his words to be true? The twelve certainly did. So where is this from? This is uh, Yochanan, uh, chapter 21, 18 through 23, taken from the Sefer. Amen, amen, I say unto you, and of course this is Yahushua speaking, when you were young, you girded yourself and walked whither you would, but when you shall be old, you shall stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird you, and carry you whether you would not. I just thought of this, but nobody questions that. Like he's saying, when you are old, like we all say, okay, well, he's speaking to that generation, right? He's not speaking to another generation. He's speaking to them. This spoke he, signifying by what death he should glorify Elohim. And when he had spoken this, he said unto him, follow me. Then Kepha, turning about, 
sees the Talmudim, uh, Tal, uh, the Talmud, whom Yahusha loved, following, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Adonai, which is he that betrays you? Kepha seeing him say to Yahusha, Adonai, what shall this man do? And he, of course, he's speaking about Yochan and John. Yahusha saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Then went this saying abroad among the brethren, that the, Tal- that the Talmud should not die. Yet Yahusha said not unto him, He shall not die, but if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to you? Upon learning that he would stretch forth his hand and be crucified for Yahusha, Kepha then tor- turned towards Yochanan and asked for the manner of his death to be described, by which Yahusha insinuated the distinct possibility that he would live to see his coming. Yochanan is then quick to explain that the saying spread abroad among the brethren that he would not die. That's fascinating insight right there. Who spread the saying abroad? But those who were present, the twelve, they all believed his imminent return, uh, that he was imminently coming for them. Yochanan corrects everyone insomuch that Yehusha suggested the possibility rather than promising it. But this is also because Yochanan was both uncertain of his own fate and humble. Notice how Yochanan doesn't correct anyone for believing that Yehusha would return within their lifetime. Some of those standing with Yahusha on the Mount of Olives would make it out of here alive. He simply wasn't confident if he would be one of them. We then see this in Kepha Rishon, or 1 Peter 4.7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. It's sayings like this that makes me think Kepha was the aggressor in spreading the message abroad, that Yochanan would live to see the coming of Yahusha while he wouldn't. Don't let my speculation ruin a good thing, though. The end of all things is at hand is serious business. One thing that seems certain, Kepha knew he wouldn't be around to share in the hope which others would. Then again, nobody really knew if they'd be the ones to evade death, as persecution was lurking around every corner and 40 years was a long time to wait. But let's at least agree to the obvious here. Kepha was writing a letter to a very specific group of people, the recovered sheep of Yasharel, and telling them to be sober and watch into prayer. That's the same sort of language which Yahusha said to his disciples in the garden, and for good reason. Meanwhile, we are expected to believe their dutiful watch was all in vain, that promises were made but never fulfilled. Seems like shaky foundations to base an authority on, if you ask me, but our controllers have set it up that way. Our next comes from Yaakov, James chapter 5, verses 8 through 9. Be ye also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of Yahuwah draws nigh. Now, the, the Sefer uh, translates the Lord to Yahuwah there. Um, I would have said um, Adon or Adonai, but whatever. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge stands before the door. As you can clearly see, even Yaakov, the brother of Yehusha, advocated an imminent appearing in the clouds. After telling the recovered sheep of Yashorel that the coming of Messiah draws nigh, he then added to the image of declaring the judge stands before the door. Sounds serious. That's the context given for those who held grudges against one another. The judge had already taken the highway exit rounded the corner of their block, 
walked up the drive and was presently standing upon their door, ready to knock or break in. Those who strictly advocate an inspiration of the Ruach throughout Scripture quickly drop the claim in passages such as these. Yaakov must have been mistaken in his personal beliefs. He had hope, but it went unanswered. That would also be a problem then, since Yaakov was making an unfulfilled claim, thereby signifying him a false prophet. Just so we're clear, it's not what I believe. It's simply the elephant in the room. The reality which others shruggingly, shruggingly claim to be an embarrassing burp. I believe it literally happened. All right, this next passage I want to read comes from Second Ezra, or Ezra uh, Revi, Revi, chapter 7, verse 28. For my son Yahusha shall be revealed with those that be with him, and they that remain shall rejoice within 400 years. I added this one in just to demonstrate the prophets were very capable in calculating the years. Ezra lived centuries before Messiah. 400 to be exact. He not only told us his name would identify with salvation, but then explained to his contemporaries and those after them that they would have to wait around another 400 years before Yahuwah would reveal him. Is that really so difficult to believe? The anticipation, and in fact the wording, is very different than what we find with the New Testament. If the same could be said of Yahusha on the second go-round, that he wouldn't return from the cosmic carousel for another 2,000 years, then Yahuwah was very capable of giving his prophets that message. All right, let's move on to the seven churches, and I need a drink of, of coffee. Not the other kind of drink. The only reason we imagine Yochanan as an old man on the island of Patmos is because our controllers have whispered that supposed fact into our ear for so long that we simply believe it to be so. Moving the composition of Revelation from the 60s to the last decade of the first century uh, is a sleight of hand which very few readers seem to notice. Where in Revelation is his age ever discussed? The giveaway is that the temple being destroyed is never once mentioned anywhere in the New Testament. And why is that? It was one of Yahushua's greatest prophecies. Often, when a prophecy was fulfilled, the writer of scripture would tell us so. And yet, as it pertains to the destruction of Yushalim, nowhere are we alleviated of the tension. It is only Josephus who lets us in on the news. And there's a reason for that. The writers of the New Testament weren't around to see it happen. The imminency of Yahushua's return is just as pressing in Revelation as with the Gospels and the surviving letters of the Twelve, if not more so. But again, moving its composition nearly three decades after the main event is a clever trick of the trade, intended to soften the language and mentally detach us from its weighty implications. See for yourself. Behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that guard the words of the prophecy of this sufferer. Revelation 22.7. Again, and behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22.12. And yet again, he which testifies these things says, Surely, I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Adonai Yahusha. The grace of our Adonai Yahusha HaMashiach be with you all. Amen. Revelation 22.20. The idea of beholding is to see or observe a thing or person, especially a remarkable or impressive one. Seems almost tangible, like something I can hold in my hands or perceive with my eyes and experience firsthand. 
That's certainly how I take it if Yochanan wrote this letter to my congregation. Our controllers, however, have sold nearly everyone on the idea that coming quickly really means suddenly but prolonged. The reported 2,000 years between Messiah and our own generation, with a big chunk of Dark Ages filling the spaces in between, is a brilliant gaslighting technique. Hasatan finds his greatest impact in giving us the truth, but then selling us on Yahusha's malpractice. Okay, where is this from? Uh, oh, we're going into Hebrew Revelation. Hebrew Revelation 1-7. Look! So, here we are. <laughs> Look, everyone! Look, he will come with the clouds, and those who pierce them, they will see him, and all the families of the earth will weep. Yes, amen. You see, context. We are given three stark warnings in the closing chapter, but that is only after the timing of his appearing in the clouds is given within the first several lines of the book. It lands in the confines of a generation when those who pierced him shall see him. This is keeping in direct line with Yahushua's earlier promises that we have already seen in Matthew 26, Mark 14, and Luke 22. Seems self-explanatory. Are we expected to believe that temple controllers will perceive him thousands of years later from Sheol? Ridiculous. Arriving in the clouds means the people who pierced him will behold him from the earth. Hebrew Revelation 2.7 uh, we are on page 25 if anyone needs to catch up, which is a perfect time for me to get another uh, drink. Whosoever has ears must hear what the Ruach says to the assembly. Whosoever overcomes will eat from the tree of life, which is in the Garden of Eden. The first church mentioned is Ephesus. I'm not reading anything here about Yahushua's imminent return, but the cognitive dissonance which often he's dealt with is that is that the congregation of Ephesus is no longer with us. It's sitting in ruins. This is, of course, according to where our controllers tell us Ephesus is supposedly located today. Point being, it's a passive event. We can only hope that some from Ephesus overcame and were given access to the Tree of Life. Oh, and that's the other thing. Greek versions uh, place the Tree of Life in Paradise. Hebrew Revelation, however, lifts the veil on the identity of Paradise and openly tells what some of us already know that the Garden of Eden was never on earth to begin with. It is and always was in the third heaven. We next read in Hebrew Revelation 2.10. Do not be afraid of them. Look, Hasatan will take some of you in captivity in order to test you, and you will have suffering for ten days. Be faithful unto the day of your death, that I may give you the crown of life. Smyrna is another city in ruins. Hopefully I'm not giving away a surprise ending when I let you in on the fact that they all are. Telling us these are past events. The context of Yahushua's sudden and swift return is given a rather provocative twist, however, when we read that, Spur that Smyrna would suffer at the hands of Hasatan for 10 days. Read a line or two up and we come to learn that it was the Yahudim, or those who call themselves Jews, but are really the sons of Hasatan, who were turning up the heat. That's a reference to our controllers. Hasatan was simply top management, but also their flesh and blood father. Any, anywho, there are precisely 10 days between Yom Teruah and Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It lands every year on the 10th day of Teshri, the 7th month. Another clue to the distinct possibility that Yom Kippur has already been fulfilled. We then read in Hebrew Revelation chapter 2, verse 16. Do repentance, and if not, 
I myself will come with haste to make war with you by the sword which is in my mouth. Somebody will argue that Yahusha's threat to come with haste is suggestive and conditional based upon their behavior. Need I make another reminder that the assembly of Pergamos is no longer among us. Like their contemporaries, it sits in ruins. Looks as though somebody incited war, but that's probably none of my business. What I'm about to say will not make a lick of sense to anyone inhabiting a post-Newtonian world. You will have to rise above that dribble and recognize that the flat, motionless realm which surrounds us is driven at its reins by the spiritual. The sword which proceeds from Yahusha's mouth is not simply metaphorical. There, I said it. I don't want to give away its appearance in his story quite yet. Before this is over, though, you'll be shown what the readers of Revelation saw in the skies above them. Yahusha reveals himself to us in more ways than our controllers would have us imagine. Hebrew Revelation chapter 2, verses 22 through 27. Look, I am about to bring over her and over him who lies with her great suffering, unless they do repentance concerning the works. And I did give her time to do repentance. And her sons will be put to death, and all the assembly will recognize that I am he who tests kidneys and heart. And everyone, according to his measures, it will be rewarded to him. But to you, even to the others who are in uh, Thyatira, since you did not learn of the teachings of Hasatan, but you must hold on to this, to this which you have until I come. And whosoever overcomes, I will give nations as his inheritance and he will lead them with a rod of iron, and you will shatter them like a potter's vessel. A promise is finally given to Thyatira that Yahushua was coming for them. Are you excited? Not that the others weren't given the same assurance. I keep using the word context, but only because his swift return has already been assured in the opening address. The letter to Thyatira becomes far more provocative, however, when we digest precisely what they were promised. They were to be given the nations as their inheritance. Leading them with a rod of iron and then shattering them like a potter's vessel tells us the set-apart members of this assembly became the kings and priests of the millennial kingdom. Please don't try to tell me Yahushua wrote a letter to an assembly promising them something which would then only be fulfilled for a later generation. Ridiculous. Thyatira sits in ruins like all the others. Surely, some from Thyatira overcame their controllers. I wouldn't be surprised if some of the contributors of Odes of Solomon derived from this assembly. We then read in Hebrew Revelation 3.3, And now remember how you have received and heard and established them and do repentance. And if not, I will come upon you like a thief, and you will not know at what time I will come. Sardis sits in ruins. It's almost like a thief came upon them, but that's probably none of my business. Quick note, the only reason why the assembly of Sardis wouldn't know the timing of his arrival is because they hadn't repented of their sins. That means they weren't interested in Torah obedience. Had they lived it out, they would have been observing the seven feast days and therefore wouldn't be left unaware when the war from heaven was waged. Hebrew Revelation chapter 3 verses 9 through 11. Look, I will give that those who are of the company of Hasatan, who say that they are the Yahudim, while they are not only deceivers, look, I am pleased to make that they will come to do supplication at your feet, but and to acknowledge that I have loved you, because you have kept the word of my hope. So, 
I will keep you from the time of testing, which will come on the earth to test those who dwell on the earth. Look, I will come with haste. Keep what you have, that no one takes your crown. Keeping Philadelphia from the time of testing, which was scheduled to affect those who dwelt on the earth, is further complemented by Yahushua's promise that he will come with haste. Why would he even suggest something like that to a city which now sits in ruins if he never intended it to be so? Apparently, everyone in his generation was given a false hope. Meanwhile, that's the given context for Philadelphia's protection. Yahuwah was coming with haste, or I should say Yahusha, I'm sorry, was coming with haste to keep them from the time of testing, but also to crown them. Hebrew Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 16. I know your works, that you are not cold or warm, if only you could be cold or warm. But because you are not cold or warm, because of this, I will spit you from my mouth. Poor Laodicea. Seems like every commentator that I can find falls into agreement. Laodicea doesn't appear to make the cut when Yahushua returns. And if I'm not mistaken, she sits in ruins today. Again, try not to let cognitive dissonance win the day. All right, this is an interesting part here. So I think we're on page 33. Nothing important about that number, by the way. All, co- all just uh, happenstance. The assumption of Miriam, something that has always bothered me. Why is there not one legitimate death witness to any of the twelve? I mean, the accounts of their deaths appear hundreds of years later and are inexplicably shady. Aside from Kepha, that is. We'll give his crucifixion story a free pass. You think somebody would record, I was there. I saw Thomas speared down. I saw Bartholomew flayed and then beheaded. I saw Matthias taken out by zombie cannibals. There are no witnesses, simply conjectures later down the line, many of them contradictory. Look, I'm not declaring the assumption of Miriam to be legitimate, certainly not with any degree of assurance. I'm simply saying it's worth consideration, knowing what we do about the placing of Yahushua's Gospels in the timetable of his story. I know, I know. Catholic tradition, right? I'm already being called all sorts of filthy names, like preterists. I might as well be accused of being a Catholic, too. Go ahead, come at me, bro. Here's what we read over at the Wikipedia. First sentence. The Assumption of Mary is one of the four Marian dogmas of the Catholic Church. It was proclaimed by Pope Pius XII in 1950 as follows. We proclaim and define it to be dogma revealed by God that the Immaculate Mother of God uh, Mary, ever virgin, when the course of her earthly life was finished, was taken up body and soul into the glory of heaven. Hmm. Catholic doctrine indeed. It says the Assumption of Mary was proclaimed dogma by Pope Pius XII in 1950. Must be false then. It would be a total shame if this were a matter of controlled opposition. Can you guys still hear me? I hope so. All right. By stating that Miriam alone ascended, whereas not one of Yahushua's 12 or followers did not, uh, the narrative sounds ridiculous. That's all by design. But I'm sure Rome would never weaponize truth or trivialize anything. You see, I recall learning about her immortal ascension into the heavens some 20 years ago when taking my very own pilgrimage through Israel and immediately writing it off as fiction because, you know, the Roman Catholic Church was holding up the cards. The potential for truth in plain sight never even entered my thinking. Next sentence. 
The equivalent belief, but not held as dogma, in the Eastern Orthodox Church is the dormition of the Mother of God or the falling asleep of the Mother of God. The Eastern Orthodox Church holds a similar belief. Well, isn't that interesting? That tells us it's not simply a Catholic thing. The tradition goes back, way back. So instead of calling me Catholic, you might as well accuse me of pushing Eastern Orthodoxy. I'm accused of a lot of things, and no, I'm not bitter. It is what it is. I'm only interested in seeking truth, and sometimes our controllers hold the cards. They don't call it controlled opposition for nothing. A few lines down, and Wiki gets slightly interesting. I won't read that, but you can see the quote there. And by the way, we're on page 35 now. It says there is no historical evidence for Mary's assumption. Well, duh. That's not the sort of exhibit that placed next to the dinosaur fossils and the Apollo 11 capsule or the Enola Gay in the Smithsonian. Evidence or not, do you really think our controllers would give this little nugget of information away? All they can do is fictionalize it, if true. We then read that the New Testament is silent regarding the end of her life. You think? And why do you suppose that is? It's silent regarding the fate of the Twelve as well. Never once are we given an epistle where someone like Thomas or Matthias or Bartholomew writes, and then there were nine. Dr. Lucas found it worth his time to document the Twelve and the adventures of Shaul, but then nobody else picked up the baton for hundreds of years. Does that make any sense to you? It makes no, none to me, but I'm not the documentarian of official history. All I can do is report to you on what is lost, and I think there is something to be discovered in the void. All we are given in the way of origins of Miriam's assumption, according to Wiki's earliest source, is more tradition, much like the manner of death which accompanied each disciple. Tradition. The 4th century writer um, Epiphanius of Salamis looked for hard evidence on Miriam's assumption, but couldn't decide. Either she died a normal and peaceful death, or she died a martyr, or she did not die. I say fourth, but for all I know, Epiphanius might have inhabited the 2nd or 3rd century. Impossible to tell. That goes the same for the varying accounts of the martyrdom of the 12th. But again, the 1st century records nothing. That's my entire point. A better way of saying that is nothing has survived. The confusion is all by design. Alright, going down to page 37. Josephus. You figure if all the families of the earth wept at Yahusha's appearing, then somebody would have taken the time to jot it down onto a piece of paper. Not that Rome was under any obligation to comply. And in fact, it has been noted around here that one of his story's greatest events was outright scrubbed by our controllers. I mean, obviously. It only makes sense that they would. Dom 2 even tells us so. But still, somebody. No, perhaps a courier pigeon got through the lines. As it turns out, Yes. Most certainly, yes. I think I found someone. On second glance, I did. Or as Shakespeare once put it, looky, looky, I got hooky. You probably want to know who. Well, I've already given him away. He's the man in the picture. Rumor has it that Josephus, sigh, I know, was there to witness it. The coming of Yahushua in the clouds over Yerushalayim, that is. You will tell me Titus Flavius Josephus was a Roman propagandist and a client for the Flavian dynasty, and therefore cannot be trusted any further than you can throw one of them Maccabean war oliphants. All of this is true. Wait, correction. He wasn't there after all. He was still in Rome sipping on cocktails from a coconut when the event in question happened. Hang out with the Flavians, no doubt. But don't let that detour you. The fact that he gave specifics, like places, dates, and the time of day, is perhaps far more telling. 
Those little details reveal to us that he had talked to a multitude of eyewitnesses. A multitude of people would have written it down. And in fact, Josephus likely read their accounts. Fight it all you want, but the coming of Yahusha was the talk of the town. Let's see what this says. Uh, uh, according to Wikipedia, in his mid-twenties, he traveled to negotiate with Emperor Nero for the release of some Jewish priest. Upon his return to Jerusalem at the outbreak of the First jo uh, Jewish-Roman War, Josephus was appointed the military governor of Galilee. Here, his arrival in Galilee, however, was fraught with internal division. Josephus was not in Jerusalem because he had set out on a diplomatic mission to free Jewish priests. The Wikipedia is slim on details, but apparently the number of priests were 12. They had been sent to Nero for trial by the Judean uh, procurator Felix. Suppos supposedly, while in passage to Rome, Josephus narrowly outwitted a shipwreck. Of the charter's 600 passengers, only 80 survived. Hmm, I don't know. Seems rather suspicious, if you ask me. I read somewhere that he fell in good terms with Empress uh, Popak. Uh, Popapia Sabina while in Rome. But that's just a side note. Also, she was 35 years old and pregnant with a second child when Nero supposedly kicked her to death. That's according to uh, Suetonius, uh, the historian Suetonius, though, and he was in uh, with the Flavians. If I had to guess, Nero was a master wizard. Um, I'm sorry. If I had to guess, Nero was as master a wizard as they come. Every propagandist fell either on the left or right hand of his magic. The false flag burning of Rome, even his reported suicide, all of it screams of psychodrama. And I haven't even gotten around to talking about the overturn of the four emperors in 69 AD yet, but I'm getting ahead of myself. The point here is that Josephus traveled to Rome to negotiate with Nero regarding the release of Jewish priests, an obvious scripted event. They were probably shooting the breeze, playing a little b-ball on the back court. Look what happens upon his return. War has broken out. The War of the Jews. Josephus is appointed the military governor over Galilee. It was set up to fail from the get-go. No, the commission didn't simply fall into his favor. Others in top brass were in on it too. Uh, and then um, we read here, uh, I'll just read what I highlighted. He suggested a, well, let's back this up. According to Josephus, he was trapped in a cave with 40 of his companions in July 67 CE. The Romans, uh, commanded by Flavius Vespasian and his son Titus, both sub, uh, subsequently Roman emperors, asked the group to surrender, but they refused. According to Josephus' account, he suggested a method of collective suicide. They drew lots and killed each other, one by one, and Josephus happened to be one of two men that were left. Indeed, Josephus was a spook from the very beginning. You don't emerge as the only sole survivor of a cave in Galilee, actually there was a second one with him, after a bloody battle against Rome and become the emperor's right-hand man. That doesn't just happen. Spook. Why would the Yahudim even commit suicide? That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. They were fighting men. What is this, Jonestown? Are we expected to believe that Josephus passed around the Kool-Aid? Time and again, Josephus unravels for us a series of unfortunate events, all of which happened to land in his favor. But he was also intel, and I'm labeling the cave story a hoax until somebody can prove otherwise. You're probably curious as to how he got out of that sticky situation. From cave survivor to New York Times bestselling author. Well, I was too. Next paragraph.
It says, while being confined, um, Josephus claimed to have experienced a divine revelation that later led to his speech uh, predicting Vespian would become emperor. That's so small, I can barely read it tonight with my eyes. He had a dream, a divine dream, a revelation from the Most High that favor was being transferred from Yasharel to Rome. Sigh. That Vespasian would become their beloved emperor, and that he, Josephus, was chosen as the people's prophet. Sounds legit. Why does this all sound familiar? Oh yes, Agent Augustine in the City of God. That is to say, Josephus was not the only one of his kind. Reading on. And my eyes are uh, uh, getting so heavy tonight. I'll just skip reading that, but you can see it there. Uh, by the way, we are on page 40, if anyone needs to catch up. It says, in addition to Roman citizenship, he was granted accommodation in conquered Judea and a pension. That's nice. Especially considering he suicided the boys under his command and then, for a grand finale, watched Yerushalayim burn with the Flavians. Oh, but there's more. Selling his soul to Satan also landed him a book deal. While in Rome and under Flavian patronage, Josephus wrote his known works. All of them. Continuing. Beginning in 71 AD, his home in Judea apparently consisted of a rotating front door because wives came and went, and within the matter of four years, we read that Vespasian arranged for Josephus to marry a captured Jewish woman. So nice of him. You figure Josephus could stand on his balcony and randomly select a commoner in the marketplace each morning to accompany him, like some flamboyant powder-faced French king. So why Vespasian needed to select a captured Jewish woman is unclear in anybody's best guess. As you can clearly see, they quickly divorced. Probably fled as soon as she found out about the cave story and surmised that he was a spook. His third wife, an Alexandrian Jewish woman, fared little better. It says his... Um, it is his fourth wife who came from a quote-unquote distinguished family, which tells us the matchmaker this time around may have been one of his intel buddies. And then we see here I highlighted uh, the next paragraph in Wikipedia. Josephus's life story remains ambiguous. You see, his life was ambiguous. Tit uh, Titus Flavius Josephus, international man of mystery. But it gets better. For once, the Wikipedia tells it as it is. Before the 19th century, Agent Josephus was deemed a traitor and his writings were banned. It was not to be studied, nor translated into Hebrew. Before the 19th century, mind you, that's when the mud flood happened. Also conveniently, when the Ashkenazi rose to prominence afterwards. Josephus being banned is just history's way of saying Millennial Kingdom saints wanted nothing to do with his propaganda. Can you blame them? I can't. Here's the thing, though. We've already read through um, a dozen or more passages in Scripture. Most refuse to believe the words of Yahushua anyway. I guess you could say I have little other choice but to get my hands dirty and source a Roman whore. But not all is lost. Josephus is no different than a Wikipedia article, as I have already demonstrated. You too can use official spook literature to rip apart the false realities which they bound us to and catch our controllers at their own folly. For example, we can use Josephus to prove Rome and the Zionists are lying to us about the location of the temple. You can read about that here, the Temple Mount hoax. To sum it up, the Temple Mount in Yerushalayim is really Fort Antonia, and the Zionists know it. With Josephus, they slipped up. So pay attention, because Josephus skated a little too loosely through a minefield of banana peels. In the year we know as 66 AD, um, so I take that back, Dave, you were right. Countless witnesses across Judea saw the armies of heaven descend in the clouds. Josephus is the one 
to tell us about it. Chariots of Fire. We are on page 42. Josephus isn't the only writer who presents us with the Armies of Heaven narrative. There were other historians with varying accounts, none of which are conflicting. They're all pieces to the puzzle, and the picture being formed is a biblical one. We'll get to them in turn, starting with Josephus. Follow along. And Elisha prayed and said, Yahuwah, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And Yahuwah opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. 2 Kings 6.17. Oops, not Josephus. That comes from 2 Kings. Pretty much the same thing, though. Aside from the obvious comparisons to Eliyahu being carried to heaven with a chariot, or Enoch's experience in the rarely read book, The Account of Enoch the Prophet, it reminds me of what we already revealed in Yeshayahu 19.1-2, when Yahuwah is seen in a cloud of glory over Mitrim. That was just the icebreaker, uh, reading Josephus' account for real this time. Thus, there was a star resembling a sword, hmm, which stood over the city, and a comet that continued a whole year. Thus, also before the Jews' rebellion, and before those commotions which preceded the war, when the people were come in great clouds, crowds to the Feast of Unleavened Bread on the eighth day of the month, Nisan, and at the ninth hour of the night, so great a light shone round the altar in the holy house that it appeared to be bright daytime, which lasted for half an hour. This light seemed to be a good sign to the unskillful, but was so inter uh, interpreted by the sacred scribes as to pretend those events that followed immediately upon it. At the same festival also, a heifer, as she was led by the high priest to be sacrificed, brought forth a lamb in the midst of the temple. Moreover, the eastern gate of the inner court of the temple, which was of brass and vastly heavy, and had been with difficulty shut by twenty men, and rested upon a basis armed with iron, and had bolts fastened very deep into the firm floor, which was there made of one entire stone, was seen to be open of its own accord about the sixth hour of the night. Now those that kept watch in the temple came hereupon, running to the captain of the temple, and told him of it, who then came up thither, and not without great difficulty was able to shut the gate again. This also appeared to be to the vulgar to be a very happy prodigy, as if God did thereby open them the gates of happiness. But the men of learning understood it, that the security of their holy house was dissolved of its own accord, and the gate was opened for the advantage of their enemies. So these publicly declared that the signal foreshadowed the desolation that was coming upon them. Besides these, a few days after the feast, on the one and twentieth day of the month, a certain uh, prodigious and incredible phenomenon appeared. I suppose the account of it would seem to be a fable, were it not related by those that saw it. And were not the events that followed it of so considerable a nature as to deserve such signals? For before setting, sunsetting, chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor were seen running about among the clouds and surrounding of cities. Moreover, at the feast which we call Pentecost, as the priests were going by night into the inner court of the temple, as their custom was, to perform their sacred uh, ministrations, they said that, in the first place, they felt a quaking and heard a great noise. And after that, they heard a sound of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. Josephus, the War of the Jews. Just so you know, that was incredibly difficult on my part, laying his entire dialogue out with, without breaking for comment. It needed to be given in full context. 
I have seen these quotes broken up for dissection purposes, and it simply doesn't have the same effect. There is so much to unravel here that I don't even know where to begin. But to start from the beginning, I suppose, or best to start from the beginning. The star resembling a sword should invoke images of the double-edged blade which protrudes from Yahushua's mouth in Revelation chapters 1, 16, and 19, 15. No need to quote from them. Um, as you've already, well, edit, I take that back, we're quoting. And seven stars were in his right hand and out of his mouth went a double-edged sword. And his appearance shone like the sun, Hebrew Revelation 117. And again, we read in 1915, And a double-edged sword went out of his mouth to smite the nations with it, and he will lead them with a rod of iron and will punish the grapes of the earth in equity with the burning anger of Yahuwah. In Revelation 117, the double-edged sword is wedged between the seven stars and Yahushua's right hand in the glorious radiance of his appearance, which shines like the sun. Both descriptions are directly comparable to the luminaries in heaven. Why shouldn't the sword then as well? In Revelation 19.15, we are told the double-edged sword is a sign by which he will smite the nation and lead them with a rod of iron, furthermore, treading upon the grapes of the earth in his wrath. Sounds serious. We then read second paragraph of a heifer being brought forth by the high priest for sacrifice, which then went into labor and delivered a lamb in the midst of the uh, temple. I'll let you figure out what's going on there. No doubt a perfect conversation starter for your next family gathering, when small talk is a bore. I can only suppose a heifer giving birth to another species of animal, albeit a clean one, is a bad omen. Kind of like the sword. I can't help but suspect the heifer giving birth to the lamb was a representation of Yahuwah's ministry, but that's for you to decide. If only I could listen in, like Alexa or the government on her cell phones, to the table talk from the first century, Nazarim, who were dissecting these end times events. Third paragraph. Josephus records the eastern gate of the temple opening on its own. Not an easy task, considering how the gate was built of brass and vastly heavy and shut with difficulty by twenty men, and rested upon a basis armed with iron and had bolts fastened very deep into the firm floor, which was there made of one entire stone. A similar account can be found with the, with the destruction of the first temple as recorded in Second Baruch. We've gone over that already. No need to repeat it again. What this tells us, though, when comparing Baruch's account of Jerusalem's destruction with Josephus's, is that the armies of heaven hadn't arrived quite yet, but scouts had. Their errand was judgment. Fourth paragraph. If chariots and troops of soldiers in their armor seen running about among the clouds doesn't somehow invoke images of Yahusha, then I suggest you spend some time wrestling with what just happened. Try not to let cognitive distance win the day. Sure, you could swim upstream against the current to keep the doctrines of our controllers intact, or you can rest assured knowing that Yahusha's 12 did not write urgently, urgently in vain. The king, the king fulfilled his promises, just as he said he would. This was a rescue mission. Yahusha returned for his loved ones, and he brought the armies of heaven along, just to ensure success. Fifth and final paragraph. Temple priest felt a quaking and heard a great noise, and after that they heard a sound as of a great multitude saying, Let us remove hence. Sounds biblical. And if I'm not mistaken, it derives from Revelation. We read in Hebrew Re Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. And when he opened the fifth, uh, the seal, I saw under the temple the persons which were killed because of the set apartness of Yahuwah, because of the testimony which they had. And they cried out with a great voice and said, Set apart and faithful Adon, until when will you judge without avenging our blood from those who dwell on the earth? And to every one of them were given white garments, and it was said to them that they should rest yet a little time. 
yeah, there's no wires being crossed here. The account given by Josephus is a literal reading of Revelation. The passage presented here has long been commented upon as a strange one, especially since many seem to pit the scene in heaven. The question is asked, why would dead souls be expected to rest under an altar for a little time longer? Well, I believe I have the answer. Sheol had already been emptied out by this point. I won't go into those details now. You can read the entire paper here, Adam's Return to Paradise. That's something I, I learned while researching and writing it, that Sheol was emptied out at the crucifixion of Messiah. Many have since asked if the cycle was afterwards rebooted, meaning, did the dead enter Sheol again and wait for another release? That would seem to de defeat the purpose of the Savior. The promise given in 2nd Esdras indicates that Sheol would be emptied of the righteous forever. We now have context to the dead souls under the altar. There was a reboot indeed, insomuch that they did not immediately enter paradise after their death. They were placed into a holding cell and told to wait under the altar, ironically under the very temple employed by the controllers, up until the moment when Yahuwah was ready to destroy the temple too. I said there were other accounts outside of Josephus and that they're all complementary. This, this edition by uh, Tacitus complements Revelation 6-2. We read, In the sky appeared a vision of armies in conflict, of glittering armor. A sudden lightning flash from the clouds lit up the temple. The doors of the holy place abruptly opened. A superhuman voice was heard to declare that the gods were leaving it. And in the same instant came the rushing tumult of their departure. I find the report given by Tacitus to be far more impactful than anything written down by Josephus. Once again, we hear of the angelic army, only now we learn that there are two of them. The forces of good and evil were fully clad in glittering armor, battling within the clouds above them, fighting perhaps for possession of Yerushalayim, one side favoring the controllers, the other side the persecuted sainthood. Can you imagine? I have long desired to behold such a scene. They were feverishly fighting for the souls of men. I don't know about you, but the sudden bolt which lit up the temple gave me chills. The good kind. That's another literal reading of what we've already encountered in Matthew 24-27. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will the coming, or so will be the coming, of the son of Adam. Just now, I, <laughs> I had to drop everything and give my wife the good news. Yahushua fulfilled his promises. That's how we know he will keep them for us too. He'll lay Hasatan out on the mat or drop his ass over and over again as many times as necessary, even employing every resource in heaven just to ensure the retrieval of those who love him. I'm willing to bet the superhuman voice was that of our Savior. He may have even been the energy empowering the lightning. At any rate, it is Tacitus who seems to capture the broadest picture, and in a few short sentences. The armies of heaven had arrived to free the captives. They arose out of the grave higher than the angels. They were then carried to heaven as sons of Elohim. Another source which briefly describes the same scene is a pseudo Hicasippus. Its author is unidentified to us. Though claiming Josephus as a pivotal source, what seems apparent, at least here, is that he was working with material which is now lost to us just as Josephus was. Because once again, the picture is greatly broadened in very few words. He writes, A certain figure appeared of tremendous size, 
which many saw, just as the books of the Jews have disclosed. And before the setting of the sun, there was suddenly seen in the clouds chariots in the clouds and armed battle arrays by which the cities of all Judea and its territories were invaded. You see, here we learn that the heavenly armies were in conflict over all Yehuda, well beyond Jerusalem. Not sure what these Jewish books are, as Josephus never mentioned a figure of tremendous size. No reason to fight it, though. You and I both know who that figure of tremendous size was. Yahusha arriving in the clouds would have been one of the biggest cover-ups in history. After our controllers saw Hamashiach in his glory, they would have been like, Oh, goy, this guy's legit. He's coming back again. We've got to stop him. We've got to do whatever we can to blind people from knowing about what actually happened and build rocket ships and the Smithsonian Museum, fake the atomic bomb, and invent make-believe viruses. Anything it takes to ascend to the heights and murder him or take down as many people into Gehenna as possible with us. There is yet one more writer who managed to describe this event without having every copy of his book become fuel for the London Fire of 1666, and that was, quote-unquote, the, medi the medieval Jewish historian, a mouthful I know, Sefer Yosepan. Though brief again, it's worth mentioning, as he manages to expound upon the scene with one important detail. He says, Moreover, in those days were seen chariots of fire and horsemen, a great force flying across the sky near to the ground, coming against Jerusalem and all the land of Judah, all of them horses of fire and riders of fire. They flew near to the ground. How low is anybody's best guess? Could they see the white of their eyes? Probably. I'm guessing they managed a uh, rooftop level, at least. I'll tell you one thing. Messiah wasn't going to pass up the opportunity of having the temple controllers recognize him. It's one reason why he appeared extra large. Gotta show that face off. Come to think of it, though, he probably really is larger than the rest. And then you can see I have some pictures here of some uh, giant doors, just to give a little illustration. Reminds me of a similar scene in the Gospel of Bartholomew. After witnessing the dead being raised to paradise during the crucifixion, Bartholomew eventually gets around to asking the resurrected Messiah about one very large individual. And this is what the Gospel of Bartholomew says. Bartholomew saith unto him, Tell me, Adonai, who was he whom the angels bear up in their hands, even that man that was very great stature? Yahushua answered and said unto him, It was Adam the first formed, for whose sake I came down from heaven upon earth. The largest individual among those who were raised from paradise was Adam. I'm not saying the large person whom Sefer described was the same person. Adam may be a chief person and priest-king over humanity, but he's not exactly the king of kings. In other news, we've seen pictures of the gigantic doors accommodating some millennial kingdom buildings. Kind of makes you wonder. All right. Now, I have to... I have to say that this next section, but Paul, uh, may be traumatic for some of you. So if you want to mute your mics for a few minutes, I'm just giving you some warning. I will try to be kind, but there are some verses I have to address here. But Paul, I knew it. You've been thinking about Shaul this entire time, my old sparring partner. I'm robbing you of your hope, and Paul proves it. It doesn't matter how many verses I turn to, their weight is only so strong as one counterbalance from the apostle of Paulianity. If there's anybody who can disprove the entirety of canon, Shaul rarely lets me down. In his second letter to Timothy, you were warned about guys like me. 
you probably already know the passage I'm referring to. But before we get to it, let's read some good theology. Now this comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 16-18. For Yah himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the shofar of Elohim. And the dead in Mashiach shall rise first, then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Yah in the air, and so shall we ever be with Yahuwah. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Not exactly how Yahusha describes his coming, but close enough. We'll run with it. Is this not a description of what we've already read? The dead were resurrected underneath the altar, and the controllers admittedly heard it. Furthermore, meeting Yah in the clouds and then being with Yahuwah forever does not signify the immediate initiation of the Millennial Kingdom. It simply means the set-apart would be with Yahusha wherever he was, and as I've already shown, Scripture agrees. The fact that Shaul includes himself in the resurrection sticks out like a sore thumb, but very few people seem willing to admit it. He says, we, and then thinks to include it a second time. Just so we're clear, we includes himself. Was Shaul simply stating his opinion again as Pollyannity often claims whenever they don't agree with him? If so, then the entire passage should be taken as an opinion. You can't have it both ways. Shaul is prophesying a future event and then including himself in it. If anyone else attempted something like this and, and, and inciting a word from the Lord, nobody would allow their prophecy to enter the goalie net after it had been proven false. We are even told that Shaul was martyred, so he clearly placed himself in the wrong category. What he should have said is, We the dead and Mashiach shall rise first, then those of you which are alive and remain. But no, not even Yochanan was willing to stake a claim on whether he'd be dead or alive. Let's just give Shaul another free pass. And we read this in 2 Timothy 2, 16-18. But sh- this is the, the popular verse uh, that you know, disproves the Millennial Kingdom happening. In the resurrection. But shun profane and vain babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and the word will eat as does a canker, of whom is Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. Oh dear, apparently figuring out that we've missed the rapture is a biblical pastime. Hymenaeus and Philetus, those cankers. Doesn't anybody find it remotely odd that two individuals were going around proclaiming how they'd been left behind? The mere fact that people were persuaded by their message tells us that a convincing case was being made. That then begs the next question. Why would saying that the resurrection has already passed overthrow the faith of some? I'm under the impression that their faith relies upon the historical reality of a resurrection event. My faith sure isn't overthrown. I seem to recall an entire book series where people had to come to terms with the fact that they were left behind. After the rapture, that is. It would be a shame if certain... With a, I'm sorry, let me repeat that. It would be a shame if a certain 13th wheel didn't get taken away with the 12th. Shaul is, however, making the case that believing they didn't make the cut, well quote-unquote, increase to more ungodliness. This is probably none of my business, but perhaps the Christians of Antioch were already advocating lawlessness. Increasing to more ungodliness just because they didn't ascend to paradise makes no sense whatsoever. If anything, it gives them a second chance to reevaluate their works. Ah, there it is. Now we're getting somewhere. Coming from 2 Timothy 4, 6-7. For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have guarded the faith. Rather convenient that Shaul announces his retirement after instructing Timothy to keep a lid on it. Look, 
Whether you subscribe to the writings of Shao or not, the fact of the matter is, he often wrote letters with the aim of shutting certain people up, people who disagree with him. We are rarely, if ever, given the other side of the argument, and the Kinker brothers are certainly no exception. Whatever evidence Hymenius and Philetus offered is glossed right over with another one of Shaul's sloppy rebuttals, and that's a shame. I guess that's where I'm at. Shaul wrote letters. At the risk of sounding like a snooty French critic, I recently gave his letters another read and was overwhelmed at how underwhelming they truly are. He's just a dude writing letters. People spend their entire lives dissecting them in churches and then going about living lawless lives. Week after week, an entire church paradigm is set up around seeking insight from the master builder, and anyone who refuses to wear his emerald lenses when reading scripture is loathed. Oh, (laughs) Oh, Noel, you silly billy. Tell us how you really feel. For being such a freaking genius, as I'm so often told, his rants and ravings are pointedly confusing and not written very well. Conclusion. Well, I would say you could turn on, everyone could turn back on their, uh, their earphones, but you can't hear me say that anyways if you turned it off. Conclusion. What would happen if the set-apart were removed from the earth in the year we know today as 67 AD? Well, for one, it explains why the Christians of Antioch, those who had done away with Torah, pummeled headfirst into apostasy by the end of the first century. Only those living a lie would remain. Sure, there would be more set apart in the centuries to come, and Rome would do its part to make war with them. Best way to destroy the truth is through controlled opposition. Uh, 67 through 70 AD was a reset. Really, I should say 66 through 70 AD. That's all it was just like the recent mud flood event some 200 years ago. Reset. According to what I've so far been able to pull from scripture, the timeline progressed for another 500 years after the destruction of the temple, give or take a few decades. And then there was another reset. Rome was destroyed, a finality that would line up with Yahushua's millennial kingdom on earth. And just so you know, I'm still trying to give Shaul a fair trial. I've given him multiple chances to be on the right side of his story, and I'm willing to give him more. Of course, I'm not the judge. Yahuwah is. Let's assume for the moment that Shaul really was taken up with the others. Perhaps Rome needed a patsy and Shaul was their boy. I'll let you decide. Meanwhile, I could care less how loud my controllers howl for the applause of their financial donors. If Master Builder means anything to you, then you'll know the people in aprons need to stick up for their own. I have no dog in this fight, but to let scripture speak for itself. Meanwhile, as it pertains to Yahushua's promises, let the rebuttals and the straw man arguments pour in. I'm used to it by now. This is such an entitled generation. People are making YouTube videos demanding that we're the generation of hope and nobody else. Ridiculous. Apparently, I'm robbing people of their hope. Such entitlement. What about your grandparents' hope and your great-grandparents' hope? I haven't robbed them of their hope because death already did that. The high places are everywhere, and history is one of them. Try to disprove the overwhelming evidence of the mud flood and the physical kingdom of Messiah which preceded it. I've looked at this from various angles, and I've tried to explain it in any other light. Nothing else satisfactory has ever been offered. There's an old Boy Scout rule where the slowest hiker walks in front of the pack. It's nearly always the pudgy kid that ends up getting mauled by a bear halfway through the weekend because he let the chocolate melt all over his face after slipping into the sleeping bag. Actually, that's a true story. It wasn't me. It was another camper. And it's a terrible rule. Sometimes my opposers simply want to slow down the progress or altogether handicap the conversation, and I won't have it. 
I'm not waiting around. If you want to find me, then look for the guy with the shovel getting his boots wet in the mud. Perhaps we'll discover his story together. All right, guys, I got through it. It is 11.15. Thank you all for your patience. And um, that was it. So you guys can uh, open up the mics. And I've talked enough tonight. I'm tired. Yeah. Hey, that was great. Great, Noel. Uh, really appreciate it. And all the details you shared uh, in laying it out. I think you did a great job in, in doing that, giving us more information to chew on and uh, better perspective. Thank you so much. Yeah, and I'll quickly add before I forget, uh, here I'm talking already again. There, This is one of those papers where, like many of the others I wrote for you guys, where it's like, I have a deadline. I decided I was going to give it this Thursday, ready or not. And um, I, I guess I wasn't really ready because there were, when I write these things, I have all these notes laid out. I'm like, okay, I only have so much time. I'll do the most important ones first and whatever I get to last. There were other accounts historically that are, are really fascinating, one of which is Emperor Nero and the fact that um, that all around Asia, uh, apparently like where the churches were, there were accounts of in in the beginning of the Jewish war, the same time that it's going on with the temple, there were accounts or just before the temple account, there were accounts of dead resurrecting um, and rising out of the earth. And, you know, there are people recording this. And so it's really interesting. It, it appears that there were dead being resurrected, uh, not just in Judea or, or Jerusalem, but all over that whole area. So I just saved you. I just saved myself like a whole day's worth of work just to explain that right there. Yeah. yeah I bet you are tired, for sure. You were on fire tonight. Thank you for that. No, that was such an amazing um, Discord. I, I'll probably read it a few times to soak all of it. Uh, you laid such um, the your logic, everything. You just you you uh, presented a very well um, built case. Um, I had just a couple of thoughts, like the the number sixty six, kind of like. Uh, caught my attention and I was wondering what you thought about it and the second question is I I missed where you think the um, Yerushalayim and the temple were actually located <clears throat> so yeah in this one I don't really discuss where um, Jerusalem and Israel is located because uh, you know really as I've said in this group before I really don't know I don't I have many reasons to suspect that it, it um, you know, Israel is a major hoax, like the moon landing and others. Um, but I don't really know that. Um, I think that this earth is far larger than, you know, this realm is far larger than we're told. And, you know, and that's just getting into theory that I can't really, you know, I can only speculate on. Um, but I do have reason to suspect that that the historical um, Israel or the land of promise is actually in the center of the earth, a place that we cannot get to. That's just speculation on my part. Again, it maybe, maybe Israel really is the historical place. In the year 66 AD, that is really interesting. And as I pointed out before, that the people of that generation knew it as a very different year. And uh, 70 AD and so on and so forth, I don't know what year they believed it to be. Uh, was it 5,540? Uh, you know, 5,436, 37, or I, I don't know. 
Um, but um, yeah, obviously they would have added that year much later. And it is interesting how they, how they framed it, isn't it? With the 66. I know. <laughs> so, okay. Well, interesting. I, um, I, I'm still looking for more material about Israel. Of course, I'm from Israel, so that's very interesting to me. Um, but, you know, there is so much archaeology in Israel and around Israel to point to the nations that are discussed in the Bible, like Canaan and Edom and Moab and, and Tzor and Sidon. So all of those, th th there is so much archaeology. So wh what do you think about all of it? I mean, so all of it is fake? Well, see, that's those are really good points, right? Um, you have mm -hmm. the you have the Red Sea crossing where the chariot wheels have been found down there. You have uh, Mount Sinai in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Uh, you have uh, you know, there's I, I don't know how I feel about the Ark that um, uh, what's his name Ron Wyatt discovered, but you know, some people are really into that. Yeah, there's there's different interesting finds. The um, some people will say undeniable proof is Sodom and Gomorrah. I don't find that as undeniable proof, but it is interesting. It's worth considering. The, the biggest thing that about historical Israel was that it's, a, it's actually a post-mud flood event. Um, you, you, when you look at the 1800s, it was, you know, Mark, Agent Mark Twain is being sent over there to start uh, publicizing, and he's talking about how it's a wasteland where he's walking all day and sees like one other soul, and it's just tumbleweeds over there. The earliest pictures you see of Yerushalayim is it's a flea market in the desert, uh, covered in mud, by the way. They had to, the earliest photographs, you could still see the mud that they had to kind of pile out. And so when the Zionist movement was starting in the 1800s, they were looking for a homeland. They looked at Texas. They looked at New York State. They, um, I think they looked somewhere in Africa. Um, it might have been South Africa. I'm yeah, not sure. Uganda. Uganda. Was it Uganda? They were looking all over. And now keep in mind that they're framing it, I think, a little bit different than probably what was really going on. And I suspect that they were looking for a place to place the Zionist homeland. That's, that, that, that's a red flag for me. I mean, if the, if the homeland was truly where they say it was, what was stopping them? Because nobody was there. It was completely empty. Uh, I, I, I take issue with that. Now, keep in mind, archaeology, um, everything that we have today, uh, psychology, archaeology, like you just go down the list, everything. It, it was invented in the 1800s. Archaeology was a, a branch of science, I guess you could call it, that was invented in the 1800s. And so um, what do you see them digging out in the 1800s? You see them digging out ancient Babylon, you know, uh, the, the pyramids, the um, uh, we talked about it in the paper today, the, the, the pyramids in, in Central America. You used to see, um, like, it was all a wasteland. And, and one of the requirements, uh, one of the laws in Torah is that when a city is destroyed, like burn and stuff like that, like, you don't repopulate it. And so I went through the series in here of uh, some weeks, some months back about how I believe these were the wastelands of the seraphim, that this was Babylon destroyed. And amazingly, they dug it up in the 1800s. Why didn't they dig it up? A hundred years before that, five hundred years before that, why were they in ruins all that time? And so that—that's just—it's just a number of things that I find highly suspicious. Now, uh, just so you know, just so you know, Ron, it, um, you know, again, I—I I don't place any other place as Israel. There are people who speculate uh, that it's Spain. I've heard 
arguments on how it's Spain. I have heard arguments that it's like uh, the U United Kingdom and uh, Scotland or Ireland. I've heard arguments. One of the ladies I want to uh, bring into this uh, discussion week, one week, uh, she's a Millennial Kingdom mudflutter. Um, she, uh, she believes that uh, California was the promised land. Now, I don't believe California is the promised land, but I find it interesting. <laughs> I find it interesting and, and worth, worth discussing. Um, and I don't know what her research is on that. I can't say at this moment. I've seen people make arguments for South Africa. That's, I guess that's why I thought South Africa, you said Uganda, but there are people who make arguments for South Africa. And again, I don't know. I, I, I just couldn't say. I really don't know. So that that's my yeah. that's where I'm at, that's where I'm at at it. Now keep in mind this too. Let's just remember this. I read that article tonight, written in 1857 or so. Well, what was happening in the 1820s? You had the Mormons come to fruition. Now it was run by Freemasons, Brigham Young, Joseph Smith. They were they were highly ranked Freemasons. They all were. Um, so the Freemasons are running um, the uh, Latter Day Saints, but. It's interesting because, you know, we, we say, well, everything the Mormons put forward, that's clearly a deception. Well, is it? And this is where you get controlled opposition, right? You, you hold the truth closely to your chest. Well, the Mormons were advocating in the 1820s that America was the historical Israel. And Mormonism was incredibly popular back then. I mean, back then, everybody knew a Mormon. Probably in every family, there was a Mormon. Mormons were everywhere. It sprang up. And people, you have to get in the mindset of these people in the 1800s. There is no Israel in the Middle East. It's not there. The Zionists haven't even staked claim on it yet. And they believe that uh, Salt Lake City was the Garden of Eden. They believe that, you know, that New York State and all, it was all the promised land. And so that's really interesting. You know, I think the Mississippi River was the River Jordan. Really interesting yeah. stuff. And okay. I'm just... I'm just saying that in you know nowadays you try to tell people that America is Israel they're like oh that's that that's funny you're making a joke right I get jokes but but back well, well we we Israelis always wanted to be part of the United States so <laughs> you know um, so I just want to tell you one more thing about um, um, the land of Israel in the 1800, there were um, several uh, waves of immigrations of uh, Jews from East Europe, especially from East Europe, um, to Israel to populate it. And um, all of the accounts, when you read historical accounts, all of them, um, Israel was mostly a swamp. It was just a swamp, and they had to dry the swamps in order to. So we have like books upon books on um, how they dried the swamps in order to make it habitable. Huh. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's kind of like. So when I I thought about it this week, I was like, oh my god! So it was the mud floods. <laughs> You know, I never connected those dots, and all of a sudden this week I connected them, and now we were talking about, you know, when Mark Twain visited uh, uh, Israel, and um, that's all it was, just um, tons of swamps all over the place. Yeah. Now, now here's, here's just some logistical questions I have about it. Again, I'm not saying it's not. 
Okay. Here's some logistical questions I have. I grew up in Southern California, so I, I have a really good kind of feel towards the size of LA and Orange County and uh, San Diego County, different, you know, different counties. And if you were to take the modern, when I went to Israel, I've been there twice. I, I, uh, my first trip, I stayed in uh, Biajala at a, a, um, a, a school there. It was right on the Valley of Elah where they say David and Goliath battled. I stayed uh -huh. there. For three, I stayed there for three months. Worked on a chicken farm, and then uh, I, I went back again um, some years later and backpacked through the Middle East. And I was really taken back with how small Israel truly was. It's a really small. I mean, it, it, yeah. it fits. It fits within like LA and Orange County. It's really small. So, so you've got the let's see the ten tribes um, because oh maybe was it nine or ten tribes that are on the uh, the west of the Jordan. And then you've got yeah. the other you've got the other three tribes that you, are you have, on... a, you have two and a two and a half and nine and a half. Okay. Nine right. and a half on one side, yeah. Okay. So the other two and a half or two and a half rounded up to three are on the other side of the Jordan River. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the boundary goes five hundred kilometers or something like that all the way to iraq to the to the euphrates river and we're told mm -hmm. that dave we're told that david in his time conquered that all the way up to babylon and i'm like how in the world do these other 10 tribes nine tribes get stuck in la and orange county and then <laughs> the others the other three tribes go all the way out to like you know the, the colorado rockies like it's you know that just it's it's those kind of things where you know and then i read accounts of like uh david running from uh, uh king saul or shaul and he's, you know, he's like hiding and he's running to all these different cities and stuff. Then I get out a map. I'm going, he's running in circles in like five miles here <laughs> to the woods. And, yeah, and that's I, a good point. Um, I've, I've heard people make arguments that they've taken the cities just in Judah alone. Like the, the, the not the, the whole Judea, the, the country, but just the border of uh, the boundary of Judah. And they say you couldn't fit all those cities in there if you tried. So again, I, I don't, you know, one of the things that happened in the 1800s is they started bringing in the map makers, right? And they started finding these locations, yeah. bringing in the archaeologists, that stuff. Again, I'm not saying it's not, but I have a lot of a lot of questions. Um, and, you know, I, I think that if it is possible that they could pull off a deception like this, they could. I'm not saying they did, but they could. So yeah. that's just my thoughts.